Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I'd like to welcome today's guest to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast. His name is Derek Milligan, technologist turned health and wellness coach. Ironman Derek Q. Milligan holds certifications in PowerPlate, Go Swim, Total Immersion, Professional Tennis Registry, Complete Health Improvement Project, Inner Train, and Heart Zone Systems. He is a passionate board member of two nationally recognized nonprofits, Kurtz Cafe and Tri Masters Sports Initiative Programs. He combines Shitsumiya's flow concept, sorry about that, Shitsumiya, with George Leonard's mastery process to guide his clients to peak fitness, personal and professional performances. Through his articles, presentations, workshops, training, and teaching sessions, Mr. Milligan has positively influenced thousands to find balance and power in life through fitness training and wellness education. He is a life, he his his is a lifelong pursuit of optimal experiences in peak performance and engagement. Derek lives to explore, train, and discover. I want to personally thank you for coming on to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast, the untold stories of well-meaning white people. I'm certain you you have many stories about this, and you and I have had some side convos, but it means a lot to me that you would actually come here and and have this conversation, so thank you. No, thank you. Um, I think there's power in conversation and power in story. Indeed. Indeed, there is. Um, I don't even know where you want to begin, but I want to just offer it over to you that I know we just read your bio, but perhaps um, there's a way you want to preface this conversation or start us off so that um, people in the audience get a feeling for who you are and why you're here. Um, Yeah, well, um, I really appreciate this opportunity to have these conversations. Born in the South, raised uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina from zero to 14, moved to the Midwest, did high school and college, and uh, came to Chicago after college. Along the way, there, you know, my life was pretty much um, impacted by a variety of challenges and disparities, um, uh, definitely around being African-American in America. Um, my parents were a computer programmer and a teacher. Eventually, 
My father, the computer programmer, got to be a senior VP of information systems in multiple Fortune 1000 companies. And so I saw what he was up against in the corporate environment, um, lack of mentorship, um, um, having to do 3X, what was expected in the job uh, description based on being um, one of the few black executives, you know, one of the few uh, C-suite executives, um, constantly feeling pressure, swallowing, um, when he didn't necessarily have a voice for certain situations. And, um, eventually, uh, in retirement at the age of 61, um, he lost his life, uh, due to his first and only heart attack. Um, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he played tennis three to four times a week, he walked uh, daily and lifted weights a couple of times a week, but he did not manage his corporate stress. Mm-hmm. So even though he was retired, all of that, um, sucking it up, being tough, eventually caused an implosion. That swallowing, like every, so let me just get clarity. You're saying your father was among senior executives, C-suite playing field in corporate positions while you were growing up. Correct. So that's, that's quite a prominent position for a black man to have reached at those particular times. No, that wasn't so common. No, it wasn't very common. And it's funny. I got to watch uh, his evolution. So when he was in high school, I wasn't born yet, but when he was in high school, um, he was an all black high school. He was salutatorian. So he was number two in his class. Um, but they didn't offer physics or calculus in his high school. Um, it wasn't part of the black school curriculum in North Carolina at that time. So he wanted to go to North Carolina state university, uh, to become an engineer and he knew um, he was going in against other students uh, that had had physics as well as calculus in high school. So if he got into the school and got into that department, he'd be doing a hurry-up offense. So he used to joke that it was going to be a race to see if you flunked out or ran out of money fastest mm. because he was ill-prepared. So he did not flunk out. He ran out of money around his second year, um, and so he did drop out. I watched him cross the stage when I was nine years old. Uh, he was 32 at that time, and he got his degree in mathematics instead of engineering. Mm-hmm. So that was really powerful for me to watch my father graduate college and uh between those two stints of college from when he dropped out um, from not having enough money to complete school at North Carolina State to when he actually finished at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, he was uh, acting as a computer programmer because he did learn on the fly. He was very bright. His math was strong, um, but he could do a job without having a degree. Mm-hmm. And and I guess... 
I heard a couple things in there. One that he made a joke around this or this, right? And it's it's within that pool of of accessibility, right? So he knew that he's having to work two, three, four times as hard just to be able to get to the same level, not because he didn't have the capability for calculus or chemistry or what, but because it, it wasn't offered. So it automatically put him lower in the offering than other people from other schools that had those offerings as a part of their high school. Correct. I mean, he, he in when he shared, and I had to, I asked a lot of questions, so he didn't necessarily want to talk about a lot of these uncomfortable things. But you know, I was very curious, and I love my dad, so I always wanted to hear these stories. And so um, when I cornered him on stuff, he get into a rhythm and start telling the story. And one of the things he said was um, one of my proudest academic accomplishments. And you know, he later went on and got a master's in business administration. One of my proudest academic accomplishments was that I did pass physics and I did pass calculus freshman year when I was competing against people who'd had the subject matter before. And so there's an assumption because it was a prerequisite uh, from his professors that they were teaching all students who'd been introduced to these two subjects. He learned it on the fly, you know, and did not fail. And he found that to be huge. And so it sounds like he carried on that work ethic and that level of um, give three times as much to be able to get to the same level within the corporate structures he founded himself. And so you watched him going back to the story you said around him dying with so much inside um, things that he had swallowed because the necessity for him to even be operating in those spaces necessitated that same thing over again, that he worked three times as harder to get the same or less results or, or less accolades to be able to even play in those spaces where there weren't any black. black It was, it was blessing and burden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it, It just reminds me of the, the, those that have paved the way that we don't hear enough of as stories of, black families or black men's success or black women's success um, and purposely that we're not seeing these time periods where entire generations were accumulating wealth among black black families or um, a time period that seems to have just kind of like been washed away as if that was never the case. Yeah. um, People often you'll hear, um, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and it's rare that anyone gets there alone. Um, you're standing on someone's shoulders. You're getting support from somewhere. Um, and my father would acknowledge, um, even though family didn't have a lot of monetary resources to share, there were tons of spiritual and emotional and uh, loving resources that were there. I mean, he knew who he was. He was proud of who he was and he knew he could compete. And, um, he gave tons of credit to my maternal grandmother, his mother, um, for laying that standard, even though she wasn't educated. And what a role model for you to watch. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. So, um, and my mother was a school teacher. Both parents were first to graduate college um, from their respective families. 
So the, there was an expectation for my brother, sister, and I to not only attend college, but to graduate college. Um, my mom was from a rural environment. Uh, my dad was one generation removed from the farm. So uh, he grew up in the city, but all of his people were from a farm situation. My mom came straight from the farm to go to university in the city, and she met my father uh, in Charlotte. Okay. So, uh, I feel like I've borrowed from both of them in terms of uh, the technical and the compassionate. Um, they both were athletes. They both like to laugh. They both love stories and they enjoy people. And they're very, very uh, family focused. And I would say that laid a great foundation for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I want to just point out that you're speaking to um, a very um, healthy family unit. And I say healthy, you know, like this, cause we all have stuff in our family that may or may not be healthy. But I guess what I want to point out is that we don't hear about this, this family, right? The, the, the educated and successful mother and father who raise successful children in the black community. And this is far, this is plenty common, but it's not the narrative that's played out as the normal. And so give us a glimpse in that because there's plenty of narratives around what the black family looks like, and it doesn't include a father. And that that's, to, in my view, been a part of like the, the whiteness marketing machine over the last number of decades uh. of what you're talking about, of like your parents came your mom specifically, but came from the farm. And then education was of value because the family unit knew in order for us to get ahead here, we need to educate ourselves. And so there was a real movement of black families being self-sustaining and growing. And then there was also a movement of that not being allowed, you know, like you can grow, but not too much. And I guess I just want your thoughts on this. Yeah, that's well put. Um, even in neighborhood, they bought their first home. And so, um, they were an apartment when I was born for the first two years. And then they bought a house in the West Charlotte area. It was all black, but it was middle-class. Um, the vast number of families, both parents worked. Um, most of the families were educated. And um, in our neighborhood in particular, there was no section eight. There's no um, welfare. Um, so a lot of the depictions, especially on television that you see around, um, being black in America wasn't our experience. You know, folks were educated, folks were caring, um, screen doors were left open. Um, we could get disciplined by other, uh, neighbors, um, especially the parents of our friends. Uh, we knew that when we were in their home, we were under their watch. And if we did something wrong, not only would um, we hear it from that parent, but it would also get back to our parents. So you kind of got double, triple um, put in line. Um, but, you know, you weren't crazy about being corrected in the moment, but you knew it was about love. So, um, even now, uh, we're at the age where a lot of those parents are making their transition. It feels like a family member every single time because 
you know, you were loved heavily in that household. It wasn't much, you know, it wasn't unusual for us to spend the night at friends' houses, uh, to have meals. Oh, just tell your mom you're having dinner here tonight, that type of thing. So um, I loved where I grew up. I loved the neighborhood. Um, the one very positive thing about social media is I'm in contact with the vast majority of um, friends I grew up with. And even being in Chicago, 700 miles from North Carolina, I have a pretty good feel for what's going on, how people are doing, and I can, you know, reach them by message. But yeah, it's it's not uh, the experience of um, crime and deprivation wasn't what we uh, grew up with in our neighborhood, but um, there were clear um, rooms that were shown you're not necessarily wanted here. So I'll give an example. Um, and give us it, an idea of what year this was, too, that you're describing the neighborhood you grew up in. Okay, so in 1973, I was nine years old, and okay. I started playing tennis because they repaid two tennis courts down the street from um, our house. And I watched the whole process, laying the asphalt, painting the courts, and just loved watching them uh, construct this thing. So some of my friends that had older siblings, they had rackets around their house. They started jumping the fence and playing. And, you know, they loaned the rackets. And so I started playing just based on neighborhood friends having balls and rackets. So um, saved my money, my uh, allowance, and bought my first racket at $3.27. And uh, that was in March of 73. So all summer long, once June came, all we did was play. And a couple of us got pretty good. So um, from nine starting to 12, um, me and my friend group, we became some of the best players in the city. Um, there was a, a set of men that started playing in the area, um, Black Association for Tennis in Charlotte. The acronym was BATCH. And in exchange for us being ball boys at their tournaments, they started uh, teaching us and giving us the basics and the fundamentals. And then they went from doing that to forming a junior team. And the junior and senior teams would travel to other cities, uh, Atlanta, D.C., uh, Raleigh, Charleston. And we play other juniors and seniors, and we started to polish our game and get better and better. Uh, several of my play friends played um, uh, college tennis, and um, it was pretty cool. Now we start competing in the tournaments around the city and the state, and we start doing pretty well. And um, I started at nine. By the time 11, 12, 13 came around, one, t one time with the city tournament in Charlotte, um, they lay down the draw, which means they draw up who your opponents are going to be for the tournament. And with that comes a schedule. You have days and times for when your matches will be. And since the folks from my group had fared pretty well, 
you can look at the exchange of the first three numbers after the area code and know the geography of what neighborhood the people are coming from. They also could have done it with zip code. But basically, after the draw was made and they mailed when your start time was, they changed the draw and called all the other kids that weren't narrow part of town and told them new times to show up. My mother rushed me to get to the match. You know, my mother's a very careful driver. She actually went over the speed limit to get me to my match on time. And um, I'm 11 years old. And I'm told, oh, your match was yesterday. You, you would have gotten a phone call. And I go, no, no one called us. And they said, well, that's too bad. And I looked at the drawing the tournament. All of my friends had gotten defaulted. I was defaulted. And, um, yeah, I just started crying because mostly because my mom had been driving 70 on the interstate. That's <laughs> normally 60 miles per hour. Got me there on time based on the time we were given. And um, the rules had changed. So to hear this correctly, you had gotten a call saying it was a time, but you were told an incorrect time and your time was the day before. So all of you guys that were in your neighborhood got calls that were told the wrong time. Uh, is a mailing, which is typical. They mail it out. But they mailed but you the incorrect time. They, they, the, the, the first time was mailed. They changed the times and called all the other players, we never got, but a not call. you guys, but you guys didn't. And it was all of you that were in the same zip code. Correct. So you were all in one neighborhood who happened to be an African-American neighborhood and everybody else's neighborhood got called. After, after we did well in previous years. That's right. Right. So. After, right. After people already knew who you were Correct. and that you were whomping ass on that court. Well, we were, <laughs> we were, we were making a dent. So we're doing it. Um, that didn't happen any other years. Uh, the following year, we did very, very well because there's a little extra energy involved in uh, our energy because and, of the fuel from having been shut down the year before. Correct. Correct. Just just clarifying the language here. No, no, Sometimes you're, you're, I feel like in these conversations, um, uh, there are things that go unsaid because they've always gone unsaid. Mm-hmm. And so a part of what we're working with is to learn how to say them, right? How to just make them plain. But we don't always want to make them plain because historically that hasn't been safe to say the, the thing out loud that everybody knows why it's happening. But it's kind of like turn the other cheek. And I guess that's something I want to bring it back to unless you have more to this story that you want to finish. I do want to ask what it was like as a young man to grow up, you know, your family's successful, you're in an African-American community, but I also want to point out to listeners, that's because a lot of times that was the only places in which African successful African-American families could buy homes is in the areas that they were allowed to, which is around um, Black communities. And um, I love what you were describing of the community that you felt within your your growing up Um But I also want people to really hear that because of redlining and other real estate racist laws, there were a lot of parameters around 
people like Derek's parents that were successful and educated and where they were allowed to purchase property and, and have a, and have homes. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, my parents grew up with four bathrooms. I did not, but, um, and when I say four bathrooms, white male, white female, black male, black female, and two separate water fountains. So based on the timing of my life, I was alive towards the end of that, the Jim Crow laws, but I did not see four bathrooms and four and two water fountains um, specifically. Explicitly. You didn't see it out loud, but you had plenty of, of those experiences, which is a part of what we're doing on this conversation of your life where those rules existed, but they weren't necessarily explicit on the wall. Now, one place I did experience it, um, one of my early basketball leagues. So when I started playing um, officiated regulation basketball, where you had referees and a league and a whole structure, um, the second team I played with, which was third through fourth grade, so basically uh, 10, 11, 12-year-olds, They put a, uh, and it was a mixed race team that I played on. And um, we won the championship, uh, I want to say three years in a row. But uh, on year four, they changed the rules where they're going to limit the number of blacks in the court at one time. They wanted to say, yeah, so and this is 1975, and they wanted to limit um, three blacks on the floor at one time. Even though our team was black and white, we had white stars, you know, coached by a white coach. But uh, that coach, Mr. Slauson, Mr. Lawson, was so upset by the rule, he found a different league. He told us about it. And we're like, wow. <laughs> but um, um, that was definitely uh, just, I, I would love to have been in a meeting where these coaches were just voting on this. But um, um, that directly impacted me. And so um, glad we had a coach, even though he was white, that wasn't for that. Very glad that he openly talked about it, you know, because he could have just switched leagues and under the guise of protecting the team members, not said what it's about, but he said what it's about. And I remember he used to share stories in and around race uh, with his Navy experience. Um, He was a builder and it's really interesting. He ended up adding on rooms in our neighborhood. So he's a white builder that ended up getting uh, extra business because of his relationship, his coaching relationship with our families. So he did a room addition to to my family's home. He did a room addition to one of my best friends, Elliot White's home. He he probably did four to five houses from team members. So um, it's one of those situations where it's a win-win, although I'm 90% sure he wasn't coaching to increase his business revenue. But when you speak to is that, 
you know, here he was being willing to speak to the thing that was the unjust thing. And there wasn't a lot he could do, but he could choose to switch leagues and say, I don't stand for this. And, and I want to say this out loud because it's like, there were all be always abolitionists throughout any movement in time. There was always people that stood against the people that were not choosing the humane path. And yet within that, there are systems and structures that make it almost impossible so for somebody to really make any shift. And what I hear resonant in your story is these kind of moments that it was like, you might've noticed disparity, but at the same time, you, you were drawing what you could to get the best from it so that you could then use that as like fuel, which it sounds like you learned from your father even. To just take um, that hardship and, and my father. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. but but it's it's funny, and I mentioned to you this earlier that um, the in Hamilton is one of the songs is about I need to be in the room. I want to be in the room where it happens. But there's a lot of power to that. If you're not in a room, if you're not part of the decision, then you're not part of the game. If you are part of the game, you're a pawn, you know, you're receiving, but you're not able to be strategic or less likely to be. So being in those early athletic rooms and early teaching moments strengthened a muscle for me to enter rooms that weren't designed for me and to be okay with being in a room that wasn't designed for me. So um, being a black male tennis player, before Arthur Ashe beat Jimmy Connors in Wimbledon in 1975 um, to be the first black male to win a Grand Slam championship. Althea Gibson was the first black female and first black person, but that was a big deal. I mean, he won the U.S. Open in 68, but uh, to win Wimbledon, that was tremendous. And I saw that match. Um, so to be the only black person in a uh, tournament draw as a junior, even in a national tournament, to be the only, uh, person of color in my first three triathlons out of 500 people, um, to go to New Zealand to do my first Ironman and, be one of three men with afros in the race. Um, One gentleman was from Chad. I never found him. There's another gentleman who had an afro who I went, I was, you know, we're we're doing the running portion next to each other. And I said, hey, are you the gentleman from Chad? And he says, no, I'm the gentleman from Germany. But he had an afro, so I asked him. But um, that's out of 1,500 racers. You know, doing a 2.4-mile swim, followed by a 112-mile bike, followed by a 26.2-mile run. So um, being in those rooms made it go, okay, there's not a lot of me here, but I've been successful in these rooms before. Different place, same approach. So uh, if I'm sitting in a um, room of a software company and we're pitching a new client and I'm the only brother there. That's pretty much, that was pretty typical for um, at least my first five years. 
in um, corporate. So, um, but what it does, you also open up a space when people see you in that role, then it changes their perspective. When I saw Arthur Ashe beat Jimmy Connors, and that was a huge upset, you know, it set a space in my mind, this is possible. And, and, and that can, that can transfer, you know? So, um, all of those situations set me up for what I do now. You know, I have C-suite executives, I have doctors, I have lawyers, I have homeless people that I have folks who sell streetwise, which is a homeless newspaper as clients. And it's all about peak performance. How do I get to that next level? People define winning a lot of different ways. And um, I speak very comfortably to a number of different levels, whether you're educated or not. I just need to understand how do you define winning? What do you deem as success? And then we map out a, a path on how to get there. What I hear from you very richly and deeply is that no matter the uncomfortableness of the situation, you harnessed that as a sense of, of personal power. So you recognize the situation and then you were able to actually like use that as a way to, to be strategic in those spaces for your own growth, for Without the growth of, and I guess and what I, I want to ask. Say, yeah, go ahead. Please. Okay, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, with my high-level athletes, especially my Ironman triathletes, one of our things, we say, you have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so we distinguish between pain and discomfort. Discomfort can be painful, but my definition for pain is if you don't slow down or stop, you're doing permanent injury. You're doing permanent damage. Now, I can be an oxygen dead. I can, um, my body may be about to bunk, which is terribly uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily going to do damage going forward in the future. I have to get through that, that situation. So um, there's a quality to that of having to uh, take inventory and know yourself, know your capabilities, know your range. And uh, whether you're talking about physical or talking about psychological, a lot of people don't take the time to know themselves. True. And I feel like this conversation, we're going to have to morph into one on mental health and high achievers, not on this call, mm -hmm. but on another conversation, because it, it's it's. To me, that's a whole nother important conversation around like how we uh, learn to regulate ourselves um, and the fine balance in mental health and achievement, right? Um, and that fine line between our mental health and genius, right? And mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot we can, you and I and, can and even rest And even rest and recovery. We're, we're in a culture where rest is almost seen as a four-letter word, a sin, but all of the high achievers know that if I don't balance it out with proper rest, I'm going to get sick, injured, or have a breakdown. Yeah, my system, it, my system can't hold all of that. It's, it Correct. needs to re rebalance itself. So it's so beautiful to hear you tell 
like the generational story, your parents, and then I'm sure you have more details of like, so you talked a little bit about like tennis and then like what high school or college was like, and then you jumped right to your professional life. Um, But I know that within all of these spaces that you found yourself inhabiting where you were the only black man in the room um, and in spaces that are sea washes of whiteness, the tennis space is a sea of whiteness because we're talking about this pre seeing any black people achieve in that arena you're talking about. And, and you're talking about the same thing within the tech corporate spaces. So I really want listeners to get a feel for it's one thing that you're able to have such high level awareness and use these uncomfortable spaces as fuel. Another thing to actually name some of the behaviors that took place that you were able to just uh, notice and keep it moving so that you could stay on your goal. And I feel like as I ask more black people and brown people and people of different cultures around this topic, the normality of not talking about it and, and just like kind of like going beyond it, it, it's so normalized that sometimes it's hard to even spot or name. And I'm curious if, if there's anything you can speak to with that. Mm, That's really powerful. Well, I talked about a few stories of, of um, achievement, but, (laughs) <laughs> there have been other times where I fell miserably and I wish I had a do-over. So um, one of the high schools I went to, um, a top 25 public school in the country in Ohio in um, ninth grade, there was a strike during the year. So basketball season and tennis season were pushed right up to next to each other. And I was a new kid at this school had a pretty good basketball season until um, the strike shut down the rest of the season. And then um, tennis was pushed back. So the coach who was actually uh, not a teacher at the school, um, he was hired from outside. He kind of had his lineup chosen. And um, I definitely would have made the team had they done a traditional thing of uh, you play each other to find out what your ranking is on the team. And um, he wanted some of his upperclassmen that he had relationships with to be on the team. He says, oh, they're seniors or juniors. He says, I tell you what. And it's funny, as a coach now, I look back at this. I can't even agree. I can't even believe, even though I was 14 years old, that I agreed to do this. He says, you're a basketball player, right? I said, yeah. It's a grown man saying this to me. He says, if you beat me in one-on-one, in basketball, you're on the tennis team. And I said, really? He says, yeah. We'll play a one-on-one. You beat me, you're on the team. If not, you wait till next year. So... (laughs) He's eliminating you out of both. He basically (laughs) first eliminated you from basketball just because he chose the other team, and now he's eliminating you... You're a tenant? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, no. I mean, I was, I was on the basketball team, but um, it was a grown man that wanted to play a one-on-one. I played him. He posted me up, backed me down, and he beats me 15-13, but I don't, I'm not on the team. I don't get to practice. I don't get to be on the ladder and play against the other players. I'm just out. Now, maybe his thinking was he's in ninth grade. 
He gets to come back as a, he has a sophomore, junior, senior year, and I can keep these other kids. They can letter this year, blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is it wasn't right structure. It was not, you know. An equal opportunity. And, Fair. and, and no, other, no other players on the team had to play them in a one-on-one. Wow. Now, wow. that whole thing in terms of swallow it, keep it moving, to me – and I, I still can feel the 14-year-old um, from that time, why didn't you beat him? You should have beaten him. Your game was strong enough to beat him. But now as an adult looking back and looking at the kids I've coached over the years and even my own children, that's it's not Totally inappropriate. It shouldn't even exactly. be on the table. It's so out of, it's like, it, 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 it's like a form of narcissism and predatory behavior that the, the power dynamic alone sets it up as wrong. Right. You can't so, even get into the game yet. <laughs> yeah. And so my father never heard that story. He would have, he would have lost it. Mm. But. Um, and why did you not tell him? Because exactly. you knew he would have lost it? Well, I'm still, you know, emotionally uh, and from a maturity standpoint, I'm still stuck on how did you let that guy beat you? Got it. So it was like a shame. It was like, wow, I felt feeling shame. ashamed from shame. instead of realizing, wow, that was abusive behavior that just happened to me by Correct. an adult. <laughs> the, the, the principal, the athletic director, no one would have gone for what he did. Mm. But, but my silence pushed it forward. Right. So right. I want to make sure I, I got a major fail story in here, too, because we, we do that on a lot of different levels. I'm sure there's a ton of gender situations in a work environment where folks just go, I shouldn't have dressed this way or I shouldn't have been in a room alone, you know, and that's not the deal. Yeah, I, I want to speak to that because I talk a lot about this lately is that it. it what predicates predatory patterns or predatory behavior is our silence. We have yes. to play along with it. And that silence is a key tool that predators and predatory patterns depend on um, because it's linked to, you know, secrecy, silence, shame, and it's, it's breeding that inner shame as if it was our fault. There was something we did. And that's always linked to any sort of, whether it's sexual abuse, financial abuse, uh, racial abuse, institutional, psychological abuse, all of these things depend on the, the silence of those getting preyed on. Right. Right. And this is a really important thing on a historical note to say there, when something is done over and over and over again and not talked about for so long, even the idea of talking about it can bring up vigilance in our body, even though our rational mind knows, oh, it's 2022, we can safely talk about these things. The, the body might not register that as true. Oh, no, I'm, I'm short of breath right now. And I'm, as you're talking, I'm sitting there thinking, I didn't even tell my friends back then. <laughs> I didn't tell yeah. my basketball teammates. I didn't tell, you know, the few tennis players I did hit with, you know, and I didn't even, yeah. I'm just, why aren't you coming to practice? No, I didn't, I'm, I'm not on the team. And I just left it at that. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, yes, it's really interesting how we hear ourselves. 
and also how we're taught. Like that didn't, that wasn't something you came up with, right? It was, it was almost like the, the success, the way that a, a young black man succeeds is he has to overcome the obstacles that are set forth, even if they're unfair. And so that becomes like a normal a normal obstacle as opposed to it's five hurdles taller than what somebody else. And you speak to this, you called it disparities and you've kind of tracked your life as these different spaces that you could be like, Oh yeah. And I'm wondering if you could speak to even the concept of what disparity means for you. And then what that means as say a father, as a husband, as a athlete, as a executive professional, because disparity feels like it's become a word of rhetoric that almost assumes that black people and people of color have to work harder. And that just goes along with disparity. And I just wonder if you can, you can take this away for us a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I love your interviewing technique. That's awesome. I actually looked up um, the definition in Merriam-Webster last night, and it says a noticeable and usually significant dis difference or dissimilarity. For me, there's also a level of inequity. And I think whether we're talking about health disparities, um, income disparities, technological disparities, a digital divide, it's a huge gross inequity based on uh, you know, an unfair breakdown of resources. So, um, yeah, disparity has completely driven my life. So one thing I'm working with right now is, um, as an elite swimming coach, drowning prevention is part of my thing. I could just focus on working with fast people all the time, but I, I think it's very important even if you never want to be an athlete, just to take the non-swimming and make them swimming. And the rate of drowning in the U.S., drowning is the number two cause of uh, death for children 15 and under. Number one is um, car crashes. Wow. Now, and understand, death for a child is still a very rare situation. It's a tragedy. But in urban environments, especially large cities, drowning for black and brown children is five to seven X that of majority kids. And that's actually increased during my adulthood. It was three X. At one point, it was 2.7 X. So to get as high as seven X in some areas, that means the Red Cross, who has this data and is responsible for most of the Learn to Swim programming in this country, but they're also a huge health advocate on the other side of their business, they're okay with that. That that statistic is normalized and acceptable, and it's not acceptable. Wow. So part of my mission is to change that number. Mm-hmm. It can't be 7X. You know, again, I train white children too. I don't want them to drown either. But we have to bring this ratio from 
5X down to one-to-one where race and class don't enter into it. So that, for me, is a huge disparity that no one talks about. At all. And the fact that the Red Cross has statistics on it, knows it, has plenty of money to do something about it within programming and chooses not to. That that is a systemic thing. That is a that is a that is a board choice, no? Um on some level, there's a oh well. And don't get me wrong, I'm Red Cross trained. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. love their history, but this is a glaring weakness. This is the warts on a toad. And um, there has to be a call out because there has to be a reallocation of attention and other resources. That's, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's just one area that directly impacts my professional life. And um, if I get two more decades on this, in this life, we're going to, we're going to make a major change in that. And so I love how you tied. Yeah, I love how you tied the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Like working with athletes that want to go fast and improve kind of like the minute aspect that can change their game versus just learning to actually get comfortable in the water and comfortable in your body and feel safe enough to not die and how they're both essential, right? They're essential um, and necessary no matter what economic sphere we find ourselves in. And I'm glad you broke it down like that way because one of the ways I word it, um, which captures a world-class athlete and the complete waterphobe, is you want a situation where your skill set is higher than the challenges that you're going to meet. So an example, every year there's uh, um, a, there are very talented athletes that drown during triathlons. And it's not because they can't swim. The challenges in front of them are higher than their current skill level. Years ago, the first the first year of Ironman Utah was done. This would have been about, I'm guessing, 2003. I can look it up in my notes. But um, it was in a lake in the mountains, huge windy day, huge waves, and uh, they sent out the pros, they sent out the elite waves, and then after wave three or four, they stopped the race. They canceled the swim because the athletes, the best athletes in the whole race, the pros, then the elite, they're treading water in the middle because they can't see the 10-foot buoys that are yellow and orange that show the direction of the course, and they just stop. Well, before they canceled the race, one of those elite racers, and I looked at his times and his history. I didn't know him, but I, we were one degree of separation like 20 times. This guy was fast. He was faster than me, and he lost his life that day. So wasn't a matter of he couldn't swim, but since the race was put on and he didn't make the judgment of not a good day to die. So that skills and challenges – that's regardless of your level. You have to make an assessment. There have been two different races where I looked at the water and I go, nope, not swimming. And in both of those races, I mean, I'd already decided I'm in the transition area, put my equipment away. And before they started to the race, they canceled the swim. 
and turned both races from a triath line into a duath line. When I was in uh, Cleveland, the Blue Cross Blue Shield, but I looked at the water and I was like, nope, I'm not going to do it. It's too risky. And because it's not worth my life. I hate mm-hmm. to get a DNF, and DNF means did not finish. But I'd rather a DNF in a race than a DNF in a life. <laughs> so, sure, sure, absolutely. So you you speak to Iron Man, you speak to tennis space, you speak to tech corporate spaces, and these are traditionally very white spaces. You speak to being the only black person in that space and yes. achieving at high levels within those spaces. So it's not or just being of, an average player. Yeah, like achieving at high levels. You're playing at an elite level within these circles. Um, and I'm wondering if there's just anything that stands out to you around things that as a black man, you had to just not even like let it roll off you like water off a duck's back. And yet in this moment, you could say, I wish I didn't have to do that. Now the system might require me to not bring it up, but is there anything that stands out? Oh, I can give you a perfect professional situation. Uh, One of the software companies I was in, my role was to be the liaison between another company we were partnered with. And so anytime uh, we were a software uh, as service business model, which meant we use technology to execute a service. And so our business partner um, was a hundred year old company, very uh, conservative grassroots, uh, won't name the companies, but in the meeting with their managers, I was bringing them up to speed with, um, what's happening with our software, how it's going to impact their bottom line, uh, what they can expect going forward. And in my introduction, the vice president of that company who was introducing me to his team, um, who I had a good working relationship with, um, he's talking about our company's expansion, these new zip codes we're serving, and zip codes that we haven't gotten to yet, and zip codes that... Um, we may never go to. And um, in Chicago, Hyde Park's a very prominent um, uh, Chicago neighborhood on the south side. Um, President Obama's home was there. University of Chicago's there. And he says, and right now this company's not serving Hyde Park, um, the business partner said, the vice president. And he says, it's... um, not a lack of computers. And one of the managers blurts out, uh, not stolen, implying that the computer penetration in this area, because it's mostly black, are stolen computers, which, no, it's a very educated, very um, and historically, historically affluent, too, that it was like the it's original exactly. migration area of some of the earliest architects. It was like the earliest wealth of Chicago and the area that it was inhabited. And it didn't wasn't only an African-American community back then, right? It was the prominent area of Chicago. And then it shipped anyway. That is exactly. so exactly. And now it houses the University of Chicago, which, you know, created the atomic bomb and has some of the top scientists in the world. But anyway, keep going. 
So every so the whole room busts out laughing. And I'm and and I'm on the I'm on the stage. I'm about to present. And um I smiled. I didn't laugh. I kind of nodded my head. But the whole time I'm going, read the room, read the room, you know. This isn't the time to stomp, you know. Mm. You still have to do your job. So there are microaggressions, and then there's a situation like that, which wasn't so micro, you know. Mm -hmm. It was a few more years before we went public. It was a critical time, but I can't go back to my CEO and go, hey, check out this, you know, was said. And to be honest with you, that particular CEO probably would have been sensitive to it, but mm, most, yeah, that's not a conversation that really going to get a whole lot of support on you know? and and one that brings it up looks ends up being pinpointed as more of the problem than the original person who makes a comment like that that everybody yeah. laughs at yeah yeah you, you, why are you so sensitive yeah and, and why do you got to make everything about race or whatever the thing yeah. the language get is that, <laughs> that puts it back onto the person of color or the black person or the the person pointing out the obvious inhumanity of a statement or the obvious racism of a statement. Can you speak to some microaggressions um, that again, have felt maybe normalized for you, but happen all the time? Uh, going to the million man March, taking a day off work, you know, using one of my personal days, uh, make it a four-day weekend and coming back and mm, I'd say roughly a third of my office was curious, you know. Um, I did have a long, drawn-out conversation with one of my colleagues because um, his questions were coming from the right place. But there's a whole lot of, why is that necessary? Uh, is that the best way of spending your time? Um, this was a part of his questioning. Not his. No, oh. the people. I didn't. I didn't really address those people beyond you know one liner or a smile. You know, but they would say that no, out loud. Question. They would but, say this out loud. Yeah. Wow. So they would just and, say to you, "Is say, that how you want to spend your time?" The technology. Yeah, and it's a powerful thing. I mean, when a million men came together to march on Washington, I mean, this is a really big, powerful um, unity situation. And a lot of people and the media itself made it out to um, to minimize it and to, uh, I don't even know the right word, to, to make it about what that languaging speaks to, to make it about the wrong thing as opposed to mm-hmm. black and what, men and what coming I together. Say, heaven- having been there was the spirit of it, the laughter on the trains, the buses, the walking uh, in the mall, um, to have that many people together, regardless of what the final number was. And I didn't hear any, I didn't see any violence. And I only heard through the, through, um, the news of two or three pickpocketing situations. When you have that many people to put together, forget what the cause is, and that's all that's going on. It was beautiful. I'm so beautiful. So glad I was there. It was a beautiful day. 
uh, still carry a, a warm feeling in my heart when I think about um, us as black men coming together like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but and I want yeah, to point a- out that the that the microaggressions or the languaging that you spoke to that your colleagues um, were kind of spewing out there. It sounds like it's so media driven, like it was a part of the narrative that they were fed yeah. as a part. It wasn't even like their own thinking, but it was just a part of the narrative around that. Without a doubt, without a doubt, because um, it wasn't like I announced I was leaving either. You know, it just, oh, that's where you were, you know. And yeah, yeah I think it very much was... Um, uh, narrative driven, narrative influenced, um, and in some cases, not even really having a thought of what to say, you know. And maybe some were trying to make a connection. I didn't, uh, you know, later for that, I didn't have time for that, but I did sit down uh, after work for a couple hours with one gentleman that really had questions around um, my why, you know, and we both felt good about the conversation and we both, you know, learned. So, um, other microaggressions or what I'll say, it could be a microaggression or it could also be the ways in which you've learned, you have to minimize the space you take up on behalf of the fragility of white people. Like almost like it's a part of what you like. It can be an unconscious operating around. If you're going to succeed as a black man, you know that in certain spaces you have to. If you're going to take up that space, you have to do it in a strategic way to be able to do it so it doesn't offend. In this way, it almost feels like there's a a, a plan or a map, but it's ultimately so that white people um, don't feel threatened. Yeah. Um from a team standpoint, you know, in basketball, I'm a point guard. So I like keeping everyone involved and approaching it as a we situation. So I'm not sure where that starts and stops and the need to, it's not good to be too visible here starts and stops, sure. but I'm, I'm sure I make some compromises around um, ego and spotlight and, um, yeah, I definitely have used the empirical we more than there were certain things that were definitely me that it was important for I had to strain in my mind to figure out a way to spin it as team. So it as a collective as opposed to really highlighting self, which if you inhabited a white body, you see people inhabiting self more than having to make it collective. Yeah. And in fact, one of the companies I was with, um, I was employee number seven. And um, in my role as a coach, there was a Tribune article that referenced me being a founder of that last software company I worked with. And we had a reunion and uh, we got together and the CEO uh, said, I love the article. That was great. And I'm apologizing to him. I said, look, the guy he interviewed me for a long time and I don't, I never said founder. He put that in himself and it was really cute. The CEO goes, we should have made you a founder. He said, that was a mistake on our part. And I, I thought that was beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. I really, I appreciate that. He was coming from a heartfelt place. Um, but I was 
you know, not quite agonizing, but I was uncomfortable with that being put in a documented situation that would live forever. And it would be assumed that came out of my mouth. Now, um, in Tanahisi Coates, Between the World and Me, uh, the letter he wrote to his son, it was a war-winning book. He changed my thinking or majorly around something I carried for decades from childhood. And I'd say a lot of um, black, brown, indigenous children had this from their parents. You got to be twice as good. You got to be twice as good. And that was always a badge of honor, especially uh, in my neighborhood. And, you know, with classroom, you know, kick that white boy's butt, you know. Um, well, he said, I grew up with got to be twice as good. But if I'm really about being twice as good, that's also saying I'll accept half as much. Mm. And I don't want my child to carry that. And I don't want my children to carry that either. So it's really interesting that that I'd say every achieving um, black friend I had has that. Yes. And, you know, a few times it would come up in conversation and be like, oh, yeah, yeah uh-huh. You know, like high five. But nah, there is something to that. Um, Very much and, so. Thank you. And I don't want to perpetuate that anymore, you know. So I bring that back to the, we should have made you a founder. There's a part of me, and this happened years before I read that book, there's a part of me that looks at that situation now and I'm going, oh, shucks, that's okay. You know, where, hey, I've done X, Y, and Z here. I should get this and demand it as opposed to waiting for scraps. It never occurred to me as a young executive to, to make that request. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're really touching on, on this heart space, this part of ourself that um, historical and compacted trauma covers up to that. We don't feel and it, it becomes a part of the resiliency that becomes our personality. So in order to even achieve in these spaces, right, we kind of have adaptive personalities that when we're actually in this new phase of looking at it, we can say, oh, I no longer want to be an adaptation in this space. I want to just take up the space. And so I love what you talked about um, that, that, was written in the book of uh, if you have to be, if you subscribe to that and you're passing that on to your children, you have to be twice as good. You have to be twice as good to succeed. You're also the opposite end of that. You're agreeing to and accept half as much. And I think that really epitomizes um, the normalcy of whiteness, like kind of the white spaces, how much the systems and the structures command and demand it therefore we can't even name it because it's become so much a part of our infused identity of overcoming and so to even stop and pause it like i'm finding that in my own community around naming predatory behavior 
that isn't necessarily rooted in racism in my personal experience, but it's the same formula. It's this predatory formula that banks on us not naming it and just Mm -hmm. kind of going with it as evolution. No, it's not evolution, right? It's actually systematic spaces that command us to operate in a certain way until we say, no, 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 I'm no longer going to operate in that way. And so hearing what you're saying when he said, oh, we should have made you a founder, a part of you is like, oh, shucks, thanks. It's like, oh, I finally got the validation after how many flipping years. And then the others is like, no, mother, uh, 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 no, Mm -hmm. give me what I deserve, you know, and that that is that allowed? Is it allowed to be like, give me what I deserve, like, and, and I'll throw out something else. Um, and I thought this was an extremely um, is a great situation for me in terms of learning. But um, there came a place where um, you get equity and you're vesting. And so having been the seventh employee, I started vesting earlier than the 1,100 people that came in behind me before we went public. And so uh, you vest um, 20% per year. So my fifth year, I was fully vested. Now, I'm like, great. I'm good. I did what I need to do. I observed this system. But what happened, and it's funny because my father at the time felt sicker about it than I did because he's going, Oh my goodness. I never worked for a startup. You know, even though he is a technical guy and he is in systems, he's like, I never worked for a startup. I didn't know how to guide you. But what happened was as they brought on more and more professional managers, my, we'll call it 10,000 shares, my 10,000 shares, stayed 10,000. The number of shares that were added to the whole pie expanded. So I should have, my proportion should have grown my 10,000. You follow me? Based on the growth of the whole company. Sure. So every time we added people and I stayed at this constant number, I was losing money. I lost a lot of money. I didn't know the conversation I have. My father didn't know the conversation I have. And from my standpoint, I had a good relationship with um, the CEO and the CTO and the founders, and they were going to take care of me. Well, they didn't. Not from that standpoint. It was. uh, They knew. They knew how the systems were structured. They knew. And. Now, this is interesting. A couple of years after that, I made a suggestion for a hire for one of my best friends in the world. uh, My high school friend became a CEO for another tech company. Before they went public, I suggested he interview a certain person. That person ended up becoming a manager in their department. They, They loved her. And... When they were going public, I get a letter from him. He set me up with 
friends and family shares. Didn't know what that meant. But you get discretionary. You can give options to people outside of the company who um, have moved the company forward. Sometimes they're board members. Sometimes they're advisory board. Sometimes they're vendor, whatever. I got, I got a much bigger cut on the IPO with my friends and family shares. I bought this very small portion, you know, than I got on the company I bled for for five years. You so, just put everything into and, and weren't taken care of by the leadership team that you were a part of. Correct. And this friend, he didn't have to do it, mm -hmm. but he felt like I moved them forward. And maybe some of our friends, I don't know. I, we've never actually yeah. talked about it. I thanked him, but, you know, mm -hmm. the contrast, it was it, literally sevenfold, the difference. It, it, it reminds me of your story, telling the story of your childhood community growing up, of what it meant to grow up among many families that took care of you and not just your parents and like what it meant to have a tight knit black community that lived together and supported each other and families. as opposed to, um, a lot of people that just grew up in a neighborhood and don't even know their next door neighbor. Right. And that can be a lot of times white people's experience and growing up. Um, it's not always as cross, um, cross family or generational or, or culturally infused, and and without the I got your back support system, it's the individualized, I'm looking out for me. And like you just said, your dad didn't know what question to ask. You didn't know what question to ask. So in that particular environment, the people that are supposed to be your allies aren't necessarily. Yeah. And, and, and even systemically, not saying this is where they were, but there can be a place of, well, he's being treated pretty well. We He's got this job. Exactly. Know. Well, he's the only whatever out of X number of companies. He's got it pretty good. But the bottom line is there are a couple of, there's some folks that didn't do squat that did much better on the outcome. So that were in, oh, that were inhabiting whiteness. And and I want to just pause that to say you're saying is kind of like normal, it's almost like a cartoon voice. Like, well, you know, he is an executive black man. He's doing just fine. I'm sure he's doing better than you know it's this, it's this, he should be happy with what he's getting. And it seems like it's not that big of a deal to say, but whether it's said in the room or whether it's said amongst a bunch of white people to each other or whether it's even thought of in your head, what's really important about that statement that Derek just brought up is that it represents historical whiteness. It's an ideology of whiteness and how the black body is looked at and perceived and expected to get their share or not, regardless of whether they earned it, whether they achieved it, whether they have the, whether they have the skill sets to have proved that all of these things are the case. Overwhelmingly black and Brown people have been told for many generations, you have to work twice as hard to get 
the same, if not less, but you still have to work twice as hard. And that's just become so ingrained. And because of that narrative that white people talk about around, well, they should be happy with it, what they got. And that is so old. It probably doesn't even come from your parents of whiteness. It comes from the whiteness of the whiteness of the whiteness behind it. That's rooted back in slavery and beyond where black people are considered a whole person. It even speaks to the gender split of seven 70 cents on the dollar for the same job. But one thing I do want to clarify, that friend, that high school friend is Jewish and white. Now, (laughs) but there is a consciousness because I remember when we were in college, um, he's out in East Coast school and I'm in a Midwest school and we still were writing letters back then. And one of his letters to me first semester of our freshman year was, um, there's a national figure who made reference to, um, he made a Jaime town comment and my friend was saying how hurtful it, that was because he felt blacks and Jews are natural allies. So, um, uh, and I could almost see the, his tears on the page of the letter. So mm-hmm. I just know his heart. I make a, a distinction between institutional racism and racist people. You know, there are a ton of racist people. I have a problem with systemic white su- uh, supremacy, especially from an institutional standpoint, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> oh. I expect there'll always be some racist individuals, but um, prejudice well, let's talk about that. Evil. Let's talk about that. There's the obvious racist, right? That is is coming out of the woodworks more and more these days because it's feeling more safe for them to be able to be like, "I'm claiming my racistness." But I appreciate that you can see them exactly. You're like we know at least it's out in the open, right? Yeah. But this is a part of what stimulates me to do this podcast and get more interviews. Here is that I feel like what's far more um, violent, even though it's not portrayed as violence, is the liberal, progressive, white person that Oh, you're not going to play around. No. And I'm saying this because to me, this isn't the person that's like, I'm a racist. This is the person that drastically doesn't want to associate their personality, their identity, or their cause as racist. And yet this same person will have microaggressions oozing out of their mouth, and they don't, A, I think a lot of them don't know that they're doing it and be others do. And they're just riding a bigger agenda. I'm not even here to talk about the ones that do know. I want to talk to the people who don't know that what they're doing is deeply offensive. Yeah. Well, offensive on one level, but dangerous on a whole nother level. Violent predatory on another level. I mean, uh, the health disparities, the way black and brown women are diagnosed and treated in a human doctor's office. And I say human doctor because I'm sure some of these medical professionals are well-intended and completely believe they're standing behind their oath regardless of what patient comes before them. But statistically, 
fewer black women are diagnosed with breast cancer, but they die at a higher rate. That's 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 an issue in the examining room and the suggestions after. And that is a human issue. That is a training issue. And that's where it becomes dangerous because maybe there are a few rogue doctors who want to see a reduction of races, but uh, want to see more black and brown deaths. But I guarantee you, most of them are... Operating out of ignorance. They're operating out of historical ignorance of what they're assuming the black woman's body means. So this person, this body walks into their door and along with it comes all the assumptions around what they've learned that black woman means, their body means, and all the other historically racist tales that swirl inside of white people's heads that are well-meaning. They're well-meaning caretakers, well-meaning nurses, well-meaning educators, not the educator that's blatantly being racist and not, not choosing the doing the right thing. The one who is saying icky things out of their mouth and they don't even contextually know why it's so deeply offensive or the one that's marking the chart, she doesn't really, she, she's not really that uncomfortable. She's just complaining. But that, right? That is a stereotype on the black woman, right? That swirls. So that person filling out the chart is taking their stereotypes and not believing this person. I've heard this, that black women aren't believed. They're not believed of their pain. Serena Williams. She, she almost died of a lung aneurysm, you know, um, the blood clot. And she's telling doctors something's not right. Something. And they're going, no, you're fine. And one, she knows her body extremely well. Two, she has means, you know. Three, she's extremely articulate and, and focused, and she's still not heard. Now, take away the notoriety of being Serena Williams. Or the money, or the access. No, it's 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 a problem that's being talked about, but I'm positive it's way undermeasured. It's much bigger, much much bigger. And it's only barely being being talked about. And the history is much longer and further than most of us have ever read. But you can look up medical apartheid and do some research on you know the studies, the medical studies, and the. Um, the medical research that was done on the female black body and um, just all these other historical tests that are in our lifetime, folks. We're not talking about in the 1800s, you know, we're talking about in the last hundred years, you know, um, that can help to context why that happening today is a form of systemic racism. It's not just a well-meaning person not doing a good job. It's that these well-meaning people have very deep racist paradigms that are, that are operating us. And it's because the systems that we're operating in operate within those paradigms. And so the, the complexity of breaking it apart in the systems 
uh, is challenging unless we start to bring it back to the person, right? The person that can start self-examining a little bit better, like, wow, what assumptions am I bringing to work about mm-hmm. black people that I don't even realize I'm bringing to work? What are some assumptions I make about the black man's body that I don't even know that I think about, you know, or that I operate? What is the assumptions I operate on the black woman's body or the way the black a black woman should behave? These are some of the concepts around whiteness that I don't believe whiteness is a person. I believe whiteness in and of itself is a construct that wraps around people. And as white people, we haven't been forced to have conversations on race. Where black and brown people, they've had to navigate race as a part of being in their bodies. But white people haven't had to have these conversations. So we automatically will freeze and be like, well, why does everything have to be on race? Well, because it's all rooted in very historically systemic um, disparities. No doubt. I know we're wrapping up here soon, but I can't let you off of this call without you speaking to being a father. Um, Uh Obviously you spoke to having a father, watching your father succeed and and struggle and how that has supported you and watching your mom and your father and how that's informed your life. But then you got married and you had, so here you're a professional, you got married, you have children what do you feel like you had to pass on to your children as black children that you had to prepare them for whiteness in ways that you wish you didn't had to? (laughs) Well, first of all, um, even in the same household, I'm amazed with how different the three children are. Um, They're clearly siblings, but they're so incredibly individual and it just blows me away. And so um, I I love looking at that puzzle that makes up nature versus nurture. But um, um, my my three children are wonderful in all their very different ways. But before becoming a father, I thought you had a responsibility to exposing them, to educating them and to making them happy. And now, I had a huge debate with one of my um, CEO clients um, who was very, very wise. And before she had children, she said, um, you don't have a responsibility to make your child happy. And, you know, I agreed to disagree but I thought a lot about what she said. I don't think we ultimately can make them happy, but I do think part of loving your child is a desire for them to be happy. And so, um, whereas before, uh, in early fatherhood, I thought making them happy was part of my job description. Now, um, cause life is hard and life can be complicated. Um, I hope they're net happy, but I put as many things around them that happiness might be a situation they find themselves in most of the time. Um, I hope that's the case, but exposing them, I want, you know, um, 
that whole principle of sound mind, sound body, um, without a doubt, they've all been sweating since a very early part of their life. They've been competing. Uh, they're all exposed to music. They're all world travelers. Um, and I think it's paid off. Um, one absolutely is crazy about reading, but they all read. Um, they all write on different levels. Um, two are very talented poets and, um, but all three tell a very good story. So it'll be interesting to see how things turn out for them. But I, I think one of the most important things is they know they're loved and they know they have a voice. Now, in terms of that twice as good versus half as much, um, that's been changed for me. I don't talk about them having to be twice as good as, quote unquote, the white man. I talk more about, um, did you do your best? Did you leave anything on the table? How much, how well did you execute versus your potential? So they're looking at um, if I'm capable of an A and I got less than an A, did I learn this subject to an expert level if I didn't do the grade? If I'm killing myself, and this just isn't part of my uh, amplitude, if I'm killing myself and I got a C, and a C is the best I could have done, and I just don't see that subject naturally, and I really have put in the sweat equity, then cool. That's that's not your thing, but you gave it everything. So um, the thing I don't know is if they're all committed to being lifetime learners. I think they are, um, but they do have each other's back. And that's funny because they fight like cats and dogs. Um, but when it comes down to it, no one else can abuse. Like they do, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've seen that on a few different levels. And so um, I'm, I'm very proud of all of them. I wish... I could be here another 70 years to see how things turn out for them, but I'm glad they have each other, you know, for when me and um, the mother's gone. So um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but so much is tied in around, and I wouldn't say necessarily leaving a legacy for them, but opening up the possibility of them. What you're really good at is you're good at sharing your philosophy and how you've, you've, um, you're growing, your shifting of languaging and your commitment to yourself has, um, instilled in you how, how you've decided to parent. And that really is apparent in, um, even your wanting or longing for them to want to be lifelong learners shows the joy of what you bring to learning, right? It, it shows how um, the areas of your growth you, you've created as offerings for your children to be able to grow and blossom, whether it was music or, or sports, like you said, moving, movement. And, um, but you're also really good at spinning away from the question 
(laughs) (laughs) And, and I want to just point out that I feel like that's a part of what makes you very successful is that you can notice like, Hmm, let's not go that route. Let's do the same thing, but through this route. So you did share kind of like the qualities that are wonderful and why you're proud as a father. And I think that's beautiful because it shows you, it shows your character as a father to really take such pride in watching your offspring um, excel and become who they are, right? And which is ultimately what you want. The question really though is, as a black father raising children in a, in a world that there's there's a lot of things happening in 2022 that were also happening in 1960 or 70 or 80 and you had to overcome a lot of these things watching these socio-political economic disparities and still succeeding anyway because your father had done that and you had done that and you of course you instill that onto your children which once again I feel like really speaks to your resilient courageous heart to always create an atmosphere of excellence and safety um, for whether it's for your clients or for your family, but it can't take it, make it not challenging as a father to watch children, uh, to watch the state of affairs and to know like, Hmm, are my children safe because they're in black bodies where if they were in white bodies, once again, they wouldn't have these disparities. I know it's not an easy thing to touch on because your positive spirit brings to what they do have, to what they have been instilled. And I guess, and it's okay if this is not a safe territory and you want to just pass. No, 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 I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll go there, but I'll be honest with you. I missed it, you know, and I get excited talking about my kids. So that wasn't me uh, being sly and steering away, but now that you've clarified it, um, I am terrified for the worst possibilities that could happen um, to them, but I don't live there. Um, But each of them has been tested and tested much earlier than I ever would have hoped. Um, But I'll give a couple of examples. So um, my youngest is heavily into basketball and um, last weekend is at an AAU basketball tournament and his team is pretty good. And he's one of the better players on that team. And at these tournaments, there are varying levels of organization. And one of the teams didn't have enough players. He's 13. They didn't have enough players. And so they travel with an set of older boys that played at the next level. And I think they lost the previous game. So they borrowed from some of the 14 year olds. And so bigger bodies and um, they were able to play the game rather than forfeiting. Even though my son's team is smaller and younger, they were giving it to these kids. They were better skilled and they're handing it to them. But um, the refereeing, was also biased towards my son's team. And he, he, he saw that, which added to the frustration of the, the older team that was getting beat, beaten. So they start pushing a little bit, doing a little extracurricular um, shoves and stuff. And uh, my son is, you know, during the course of play, hey, I'm just here to play a game just like y'all are. Hey, he's deflecting, but he's still uh, doing his thing to win. 
one of the parents for my son's team gets upset about how rough and he's kind of starting to speak out in the defense of his son that's on the floor. And he yells out, hey, they're only 13. Hey, they're little guys. And this parent, apparently, I wasn't at the game. He's a big guy. And he walks down onto the floor. And one of the other coaches for the opposing team took his walking down to the floor as a threat. And he hits him. So the black coach on the other team hits his large white parent, who seemed physically threatening because he come down to the floor. And um, he hit him hard. The gentleman's legs were shaking on the ground and he was semi-conscious. My son backs away from the craziness. Now everybody's running and there's contact. And he gets his mother's attention. He waves her and then he points at a side door. That's where we're going to meet. That's how we're getting out. And he was having a pretty good game, but to him, the game's done. And we're at another level. And um, his mother called to tell me this whole thing and asked me to talk to him because he was a little upset. So by the time they get to the car, there's an ambulance and three um, police cars pulling in. And they slide out. They're safe. They're fine. Um, But him being so poised in a chaotic situation, I love the fact that he went to his mother's safety and his own safety first and foremost, he could tell, you know, and I talked to him for a couple hours after and, you know, what did you notice? What did you observe? And um, he's become, he's a very good student. He's a very skilled athlete, but I was like, wow, he's becoming a, strongly instinctive man and the the sadness is that at 13 you shouldn't have to become a man or have that high level awareness right to be like yeah that shows the level of survival skill sets that that is like playing in him instinctually and, and also in your in your own teaching but that was beautiful yeah so that was a great feel good story that same thing could have played out a lot of different ways where he can't make eye contact with his mother and um, two, three players make a direct run at him when the chaos breaks out. So um, uh, I am very fearful uh, for all three of them. Um, But I'm also extremely confident that they're aware that there's an enemy, that the enemy's systemic and that they have to continue to grow their skills to not be permanently damaged by the enemy. So, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I probably did dodge a little bit because I don't like to think of them being vulnerable. So I have no words. I have no words. And I want to just say that it's only been in the last couple of years that white people as a collective, I've even been paying attention to the fact that there are parent talks that parents have to have with black and brown people and young kids that white kids have never heard before, whether it was driving in a car and these types of things. And this is kind of fresh in the awareness of what, of well-meaning white people 
um, but lives in the marrow and in the bloodstream of black and brown communities because it's a matter of safety and survival, and that's a generational thing. So it, it, it is challenging to talk about. It's challenging to name when the body registered is, registers it as historically unsafe. Just because it's supposedly safe to talk about doesn't necessarily mean it is. We have to build up capacity for safety, and, and I just want to thank you for going there with us. Well, you're welcome. And I, with actually that same child, um, I had had a car accident and um, the police never showed up on the spot. So me and the other driver agreed to go do separate police reports at local precincts. And so I go to a local precinct and uh, the school officer for my kid's school happened to intercept me as I was walking into the building. He said, oh, hi, Mr. Milligan. Uh, what's up? Oh, I can take that. And so he's going to take a report. It's a beautiful, sunny summer day. And he's like, we can just go outside. And there's a picnic table. And my son is much younger at that time. He's probably five years old. And um, we're sitting at the table to do the report. And the officer, who likes our family a lot, says, you know, I don't want him running around here. There's a busy street. There's a parking lot here. Let's put him in the back of the police car. And I said, no, he's fine here. And he became insistent. No, I'm worried about his safety. And this is a white officer. Let's put him in the back of the police car. It's fine. I said, no, it's not fine. And I, I have to change my voice. You know, because he's in this role of authority where he thinks he's going to tell me what to do with my son. I have a million different reasons, but it'll escalate. And also, I'm feeling I don't need to explain it to you. But in case anybody in your audience doesn't get it, my son's not going to get comfortable in the back of a police car. That is not something that his subconscious can go. This is an okay place to be in. And this officer insisting on this isn't understanding the threat to a young black man of that becoming comfortable. So now we're in a situation where we're both standing up. He's confused. And I'm going, how mad and insistent do I need to get for him to hear me? And in the back of my mind, How's this going to impact this police report that he's writing for me? <laughs> so those are micro and macro aggressions. Yeah, and, and I don't complex. Think he, I, I don't think he ever got it, but he didn't have to get it. He just needed to respect my son's not getting in the back of the police car, which he did. Right, right. And this Bottom is somebody, and he wrote a very good report in my favor. But the bottom line is that is exactly what your podcast is named after. That was a very uncomfortable conversation. And I was willing to risk offending this guy, possibly being physically detained. If he tried to open the door and put his hand on my son's arm to guide him into the back of his car. 
completely unaware. And, and, and in his in his own disassociated white bubble, having no awareness why that isn't something that you would want to say yes to. Not We don't know his whole world of why he thought that was a good idea. What if he had suggested that with a white guy's kid? You know, probably not. But crazy, because I've never heard I think, of it. I think, I think he would have suggested that with the that's, white guy's kid. And that's the point, right? The point is, is that he didn't even know why you wouldn't want to say yes. Cause it's just kind of like, Oh, this is just a suggestion. Everything's fine here. And yet there can be all sorts of reasons why it might not be fine. And that all that matters is that you're saying, no, this isn't what I want for my son. And as a white guy, I may not have tripped about it because that's, right. that's not, yeah. Historically an, an issue, so to speak. Yeah. Very good. Very, very, uh, very well said. Hmm. As we go towards wrapping, is there anything that you want to say to any well-meaning white people that are listening? Um, we're all Americans. We're all citizens of the earth. We share this planet. We don't want to hurt you. <laughs> so... Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak in here. Um, you made me think and feel some things I hadn't, I hadn't um, processed in a while. And when you went to my children, I, I very much got raw. So um, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. You just said, we don't, we don't want, we don't mean to hurt you. We're not here to hurt you. And what I want well-meaning white listeners to hear in this very profound statement that is being spoken here by Derek is that a lot of well-meaning people, well-meaning whiteness, what it'll do to your own consciousness is it'll make you think that you believe everyone is one, that we're all equal and that we're all, we're all in this together. And that's a part of what makes it the well-meaning part of whiteness is not having the conversation on race and on whiteness, why, how whiteness shows itself um, means that we're not a part of the conversation around how black people and brown people may feel that we feel they're a threat. They feel it. It's not what we say. And it's how we inhabit space. And I'm bringing this up specifically because of the point that Derek just made in that in your mind, you might say, yeah, I feel like you're my equal too. But when you're in a situation where you're the only white person in the room and it's all black people or all brown people or you're in a space that's not your familiar zone, what happens in your biology, in your chemistry, when you're the only white person in that space? And this is a part of the inquiry that you have to do as a white person, that I have to do as a white person, to really examine the reptilian fear, the baseline fear that shows up when we're under duress in spaces that Black people inhabit. 
And this really can start to shed light on where well-meaning white people actually have racism that spews and we don't even know it's living below, below the surface of our existence. So this inquiry or this particular practice comes out of the book, um, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menicum. I brought it up um, in earlier episodes and I encourage, it's one of the main books I really encourage um, all bodies of culture, no matter what body you inhabit, but white people, he gives specific exercises for us to do to watch what happens in our biology to help us peel back the layers of our unconscious assumptions that would make somebody like Derek Milligan, who's a professional in all of the areas, whether he's professionally supporting his children to be the best he can be or excellence in, in tech or as an athlete or in all these arenas, would say out loud, we're not here to hurt you. And what that really, again, speaks to is that a lot of white spaces hold assumptions that make Black people have to minimize themselves in order to excel. And that's a part of the system of whiteness. Um, and there's so much excellence. So even in that minimization, there's still boundless excellence that comes out of the Black community, Indigenous communities, cultural communities around the world. And whiteness by its nature minimizes it or appropriates it and takes it as its own. So these are so common that we often don't even recognize it. We don't recognize it happening. We don't recognize the fear that we inhabit as white people when we come into contact with black people if they're not appeasing us or making us feel safe. And it's not black people's job to make us feel safe. It's also black pe not black people's job to emotionally comfort us. And what Resma Menikin points out in this book is that historically, black people's job has been to emotionally comfort the white body. And if they're not emotionally comforting the white body, then they're being violent towards it. And There's so also, yeah. I would also say Hollywood pushes that, that narrative. That narrative. Quite a bit. Well, it's the marketing machine, right? It's the marketing machine of whiteness of the birth of a nation was, was a huge aspect of that in terms of like painting the persona of the black entertainer and then the white people, you know, and, and the black scary person and, and just all the ways that white people, we, we watch that movie and start to dissect how many of your unconscious upbringing infused that, that paradigm or that marketing of a movie in your upbringing. You don't even know it. And a lot of white people don't even know what that movie exists. So that's also a problem because the president of the United States watched the movie in the theater. And so this was so a part of the national narrative that got infused into the consciousness and that operates in our unconscious fear, brain, fear based brain. Anyway, I really say all that to say I really appreciate what you just said. And I think it doesn't even land into well meaning white people until they really root into themselves a little bit and be like, why would black people be, why would I be afraid? It's, it's 2022. I'm not afraid. And yet we don't un understand what it really means to inhabit systemic racism in our bodies and our operating systems. And that when we're, when we're under threat, the call, the, the, the cry for help 
these things mean that black and brown bodies die or get mutilated or families fall apart. And that's historically because white people have felt afraid. So on that note, I ask all of our guests to share a song that has been influential for them or supported their own journey or a song that they just want to share for listeners. And so I'm going to ask Jarek, let us know about your song. My song is by the great John Coltrane of North Carolina, moved to North to New York uh, as a professional, and it is my favorite things. My favorite things. All right, let's little get a little taste of uh, John Coltrane. And here we go. Favorite Things by John Coltrane. Thank you so much for that. For copyright reasons, we don't uh, play the whole song, but we do start a Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast playlist that you can listen to the full song of every episode. So thank you for tuning in. And thank you, Derek, for being uh, one of our guests on our podcast today. Thank you for having me, Guru Nashan. I want to just say thank you for listening to another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast. If you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. And please also like, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with someone you love. Your listening and sharing support is greatly appreciated. My name is Guru Nishan, and you can connect with me further at gurunishan.com. Thanks for tuning in.